Welcome to this podcast titled Cultural Safety in Healthcare, where we are drawing on the content from the March 2023 print edition of the Clinical Communicate. I'm Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. The March 2023 print edition of the Clinical Communicate was a very special edition for us, as we were joined by an incredible team of Indigenous contributors from clinical, education, design and consumer advocacy backgrounds. This important edition presented two coroner's cases where a lack of cultural safety in the healthcare system led to preventable, tragic consequences. And our contributors helped us to shape and deliver important messages about the link between cultural safety and patient safety. Two of those contributors, Dr. Jordana Stanford and Mr. Oli Winyard Gonfon, now also join me in presenting this accompanying podcast. Let's now hear from Oli Winyard Gonfon. Welcome to episode 11 of the Clinical Communique podcast, based on the March 2023 edition of the Clinical Communique. I'm Oli Winyard Donfold, and here are the contents of this podcast. Editorial, guest editorial, case number one, a culture of care, case number two, seen but not heard, expert commentary, developing cultural safety behaviours and capabilities in healthcare, Expert commentary, why cultural safety improves patient safety. Now let's hear the editorial by Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham. Editorial by Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham. There are many ways by which we come in selecting our themes for the clinical communiques. Sometimes it'll be a single coroner's finding that leads us toward a particular diagnosis or contributing factor. Occasionally, it's a conversation with a colleague about an area of concern that we know needs to be highlighted. Other times, it is a tragic cluster of cases that we just cannot look past, or a pressing systemic issue that we need to add our voice to. Every now and then, however, an addition, such as the March 2023 one, begins with the planting of a seed, an idea born from our own experience, cultivated by chance encounters with the right people at the right time, and brought to fruition by their unwavering conviction to improve the healthcare system. The clinical communique becomes the instrument that brings those people together to help share powerful lessons with our healthcare community. It is a privilege for our team to be a part of that process. A few months ago, I was sitting in a room full of people, of all nationalities and professions, and we were coming to the end of an intense and thought-provoking cultural safety training workshop. There are many ways to define cultural safety in healthcare. At its core is the notion of establishing respect for culture in health, addressing unconscious bias, racism, and discrimination, and ensuring the safe experience of the recipient of care. Culture is not homogenous or static. It's an ever-evolving and deeply individualized construct. The training I undertook consisted of six weeks of reading and completion of modules, followed by a full-day face-to-face workshop. I had learnt a lot, I wanted to know more, and I wondered why I was only then, after more than two decades of work as a medical practitioner, that I was experiencing this fundamental training in such an immersive and impactful way. I raised my hand and asked the facilitator what it might take to make cultural safety training tools like that workshop available to all healthcare professionals. Around that same time, I'd come across two coroner's findings 
that were the first I'd seen to describe a lack of cultural safety as a contributing factor in preventable hospital deaths. A line from one of those findings stuck with me. Deputy State Coroner Harriet Graham wrote, It was necessary to place the patient's care within the context of the well-known disparity between the health outcomes of Aboriginal people and those from non-Aboriginal populations, but also to place it in the context of the specific community and family dissatisfaction which was reported, which together make it essential not to shy away from the issue or sweep it under the carpet for fear of causing offence. I realised that the clinical communique was one way in which we could put a spotlight on the issues and the need for cultural safety training in our profession. The course facilitator that day was Mr Ollie Wynyard-Gurfond, a programme designer who brought a confronting honesty and infectious enthusiasm to our learning and who went on to become a contributor to this important edition and our narrator for this podcast. He's truly a man of many talents. The other contributors were equally inspiring and gracious in their acceptance of my invitation to guide and contribute to this edition on cultural safety. It was crucial that we engaged First Nations people to lead this project, from the conception of the edition to the content and creative design. We respected their input, and in turn, they trusted us to deliver their messages. We are wholly indebted to Dr. Jordana Stanford, a resourceful early career clinician, Dr. Glenn Harrison, a respected clinical leader, Miss Jackie Gibson, an established consumer expert, and Miss Belinda Gibb, an innovator in education and policy, for their contributions to this edition and podcast, which features key insights and practical advice on how we must improve cultural safety in healthcare. It's a commonly heard phrase in patient safety that clinicians don't go to work intending to harm patients. But we know that the systems and the environments in which we work can set us up to cause unintentional harm. I believe the same can be said about cultural safety in healthcare. Individuals don't go to work intending to be racist. But the systems, processes, resource disparities and cognitive biases that exist in every workplace create traps where actions and words are culturally unsafe. We may not see it when it happens, or fully understand why it happens, but what becomes clear to all is the potential harm that it causes to patients. We make no apologies for any discomfort our listeners may feel with what follows in this podcast. Discomfort can be a negative emotion, but it can also generate a positive action. In medicine, discomfort points to the site of pain. It localizes the problem that needs to be addressed. Hearing these patients' stories where a lack of cultural safety led to tragic consequences should be uncomfortable. Do not look past this, because what you ignore, you are tacitly agreeing to. And what you discount as someone else's problem belongs to everyone. Doctors are the cultural lead for clinical teams in healthcare, so embrace the discomfort and recognise that we are part of the solution. Let's now listen to Jordana Stanford narrate the guest editorial. Guest editorial by Miss Belinda Gibb, who is a proud Darug woman 
the Traditional Custodians Group of Sydney, Australia. Belinda has over 25 years' experience in education, policy and program delivery in both government and the not-for-profit sector. She is currently the Manager of Indigenous Policy and Programs at the Australian Medical Council and is a member of, board, of the Board of Directors for Krana Plus and of the Darug Strategic Management Group. Doctors are an essential part of the community and have a very real impact on people's lives. Being a doctor is an honourable profession and one that evokes expectations of trust and impartiality. But stereotyping, unconscious bias and racism are very real and unless our healthcare systems address this, people will continue to die. Australia has always been home to hundreds of different nationalities. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia alone is made up of many different and distinct groups, each with their own culture, customs, language and laws. They are the world's oldest surviving cultures, cultures that continue to be expressed in dynamic and contemporary ways. Medicine in this country, much like the other systems and institutions, is set up to only serve one culture. It is important to stop here for a moment and reflect on the following. Seemingly obvious statement. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander health is simply health. And every doctor that practices medicine in this country will have Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander patients. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people require the same access to person-centred, evidence-informed care to enable health equity as non-Indigenous people. But systemic racism means they don't get it. As a result, Indigenous Australians are three times more likely to die from preventable or avoidable death than non-Indigenous Australians. Doctors are not trained to be aware of how to provide care in a way that acknowledges significant cultural and linguistic differences at play on this continent. They are not trained to be aware of their own bias in relation to these cultural differences or to be alert to the potential impact of this bias on their patients. If doctors were trained in this way, perhaps the women discussed in this cases would be at home with their families now. The thing is, when doctors do not know how to provide culturally safe care, although the end goal of this would be that they learn this, they need to ask for help. There are supports available. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers, interpreters, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander liaison officers, and a multitude of others. In these tragic cases, and in most that end the way these do, no one called them. Why? Doctors regularly ask opinions of each other, make referrals and hand over cases to other doctors. They do this willingly because they know that the care their patient needs is outside of their scope of expertise. They are taught this in medical school, but they are not taught about the impact of colonising cultures or the racism embedded into everyday society. They are not taught that the systems and the institutions in which they work were not designed to care for people from other cultures. They are not taught that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is something they are unlikely to fully understand 
or that specialists in this area are unlikely to carry the qualifications that doctors usually look to for advice and expertise. They are never taught that a lack of conventional qualifications is not the only measure of a skilled professional. There is little understanding or respect for the unique skills and knowledge that can only come from living as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person on this continent. The impact of not understanding this means that doctors may not recognise that aspects of the clinical scenario facing them are outside of their scope of expertise, that they need to ask for help. This almost always leads to poor outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and this is something Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders know far too well. Doctors in this country, like many others, are not asked to look at their own bias, even though it is widely accepted that unconscious or implicit bias occurs when an individual's brain reaches conclusions based on what is already familiar, safe, likeable, valuable and logical, without any conscious thought occurring. This processing is influenced by stereotypes and therefore those stereotypes impact your actions and judgment. When I was pregnant with my second child, the doctor asked me about my alcohol use. I told the doctor I did not drink at all, and he responded with, it's okay, you can tell me the truth. Why would he say this? Stereotyping and cultural bias. The doctor had heard that Aboriginal people drink, so I must then, it can be nothing else. This couldn't have resulted in my not going back to the doctors during my pregnancy, but instead, I just found another doctor. This is not an option in remote, rural or isolated settings. We also know that experiencing discrimination in the healthcare context can lead to differences in future health-seeking behaviour for the individual and their family, i.e. late presentation, lack of open disclosure, reduced adherence, disruptions to continuity of care, future medical mistrust, which also influences patient outcomes like the severity of disease, survival. So incidents like that could have ripple effects for generations. Given the very real life and death stakes here, the question we must ask ourselves is this. Do you know enough about this to do your job? If you do not understand the issues and the position of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers or patients, how can you hope to deliver on the outcomes or address the issues listed above? What we do know for sure is that the education systems in this country did not begin to explain the perspective of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples and it did not teach the historical issues that continue to impact on Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander communities and people today. What do we need to do to fix this? What is not needed is non-Indigenous doctors asking Indigenous people to educate them. This is not where the burden should lie. The onus is on the doctor to seek out knowledge and understanding so that they can provide the highest standard of care to an Indigenous patient 
that they would be proud to give if treating a non-Indigenous patient. The education is out there. It's in conversations with your Indigenous patients and their relatives. You just must genuinely ask and listen. It is in cultural safety training that is seen as valuable and sought after by doctors, rather than being seen as a box to tick or a mandatory competency to complete. The Australian Medical Council, AMC, where I work, is committed to improving health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Maori people through medical education, assessments and training standards. As a key part of this commitment, AMC acknowledges the right to self-determination and the unique skills and knowledge that can only come from this lived experience. We know that we cannot achieve this without the strong guidance of First Nations people. So all of this is led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Maori people when developing policies or processes which may impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Maori peoples. To do this well, we must acknowledge we may not know when this happens. So we ask for their voice in everything we do. It has meant that many of us have had to learn how to do things differently, to make space for another way of doing our jobs and to allow change to be guided by the experts in this space. Not just the Indigenous doctors and educators, but also the members of our many communities across Australia and their varied approaches to achieve equity in our healthcare systems nationally. We undertake cultural safety training on a regular basis, not just once, but several times a year. And we make space for Indigenous cultures in our day-to-day practices and our policy and processes. You have to want to be educated and to seek it out. The goal should always be that doctors know how to provide culturally safe care and that doctors know what support systems are out there for them when they don't know what to do, and that they do it. Because these women, like so many others, are now someone's family that are not coming home. Let's now listen to the case from the Northern Territory. Case number one, A Culture of Care, by Dr. Glenn Harrison, who is a Wachabalak man who works as an emergency physician in Victoria. Glenn is the board director of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and the co-chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine Indigenous Health Committee. Clinical Summary Ms. KM was an Aboriginal child who was born in Central Australia and lived there with her family. She required early hospitalizations for failure to gain weight. This was stabilized, and she maintained normal weight throughout her childhood and her early adolescence. At 12 years of age, there were increasing concerns about her. She was overweight and suffering symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. She was referred by her general practitioner, Dr. H, to the ear, nose, and throat clinic at the regional hospital. After an initial four-month time frame, Ms. KM attended the ear, nose, and throat clinic with her father and was seen by Dr. V, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, who confirmed that she had symptoms consistent with obstructive sleep apnea. There was no recommendation for surgery. Instead, she was managed conservatively with further blood tests, an X-ray, and a sleep study. Parental consent was not given for these tests, 
and they remained incomplete. Dr. H saw her 12 months later with ongoing concerns about continued weight loss and worsening sleep apnea symptoms. By that time, Ms. KM was attending a boarding school in the capital city. It was recognised the family had not understood the clinical information given at the ear, nose and throat clinic and had an exaggerated fear of the recommended tests. Dr. H requested that the clinic perform the tests and communicated a verbal consent from the parents. After further delays, Dr. H also sent several letters to the boarding school nurses asking them to facilitate a local specialist clinic appointment, noting that the parents were willing to travel. Ms. KM was seen again in the regional hospital ear, nose and throat clinic, where two years had passed since her initial review. Dr. K, who had replaced Dr. V, diagnosed significant tonsil and adenoid enlargement and recommended a dentonsillectomy. Parental consent was again not obtained. Dr. H continued to advocate for Ms. KM following ongoing delays, and he succeeded in gaining a Category 2 surgical waiting list booking. Category 2 meant that admission within 90 days was desirable. Over the next 11 months, the hospital communicated to the local health service two separate dates for surgery. However, on each occasion, the hospital was told Ms. KM was away at boarding school. A visiting ear, nose and throat outreach service was in town, coinciding with Ms. KM's return home for school holidays the following year. She was reviewed by a specialist, Dr. R, who diagnosed her with obesity and severe sleep apnea. However, she was now considered a high risk for surgical complications and required referral to an interstate tertiary ear, nose and throat center. A junior doctor of the interstate unit received this verbal referral from Dr. R, initiated the booking form and forwarded it for completion and surgical prioritization by the administrative staff and specialist. A written referral was then faxed by Dr. R that was subsequently lost before the details could be entered into the hospital system. Ms. KM was given a staged admission classification with no surgical date or priority. That is, her admission was deferred until it was deemed medically appropriate. Ms. KM's health continued to deteriorate and she was noted to be unable to stay awake at school and was difficult to rouse. She was sent home from school with recommendations to return only after she had recovered from surgery. While advocating for Ms. KM, a local health clinic nurse discovered the failed referral booking and contacted the outreach ear, nose and throat specialist to provide a second urgent referral on phone, eventuating in a Category 2 surgical book. During this time, Ms. KM remained home from school awaiting surgery. She died in her sleep, age 16, one week before her scheduled surgery and four years after her initial diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. Pathology. Ms. KM's death was unexpected and was reported to the local police by her family. Post-mortem examination revealed her cause of death as obstructed breathing and heart arrhythmia, secondary to severe obstructive sleep apnea and morbid obesity. Investigation. The coronial inquest sought to examine whether Ms. KM's death was preventable in relation to the medical care provided to her following the detection of her symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea four years early. The coroner sought to investigate the management of surgical referrals, categorization of surgical priority, management while awaiting surgery, and communication between the hospital and the general practitioner and Ms. KM's family. 
state health network and hospital policies and procedures relating to waiting time and elective patient management were reviewed. Expert evidence from a specialist in adolescent and respiratory medicine explained that obstructive sleep apnea resulted from obstruction or blockage of the airways and in childhood is almost always due to tonsillar and adenoid enlargement with recommended treatment being surgery for adentonsillectomy. The condition manifests in airway obstruction during sleep with pauses in breathing and interruption of sleep with subsequent daytime tiredness, decreased concentration, poor life functioning, and poorer quality of life. Obstructive sleep apnea is compounded by obesity. The expert opines that there was significant clinical information at the first ear, nose, and throat review to recommend surgery as a Category 2 priority and a wait time of less than 90 days. None of the medical practitioners who gave evidence considered a sleep study necessary prior to surgery. The chair of the tertiary interstate ear, nose, and throat service stated they had not followed their own criteria and had erred in not allocating a Category 1 surgical priority. The expert highlighted the importance of advocacy and the role played by several individuals, in particular Dr. H and the local health clinic nurse, in trying to expedite Ms. KM's surgical care. The coroner heard evidence detailing the significant delays in poor communication from the health services. Ms. KM's family spoke English as a second language and did not fully understand the medical information that was presented to them. In short, the multifactorial causes of her delays included there was sufficient evidence of first ear, nose and throat review to recommend surgery. Sleep studies were not necessary before surgery. Language barriers and communication difficulties were evident and impacted the understanding and interpretation of clinical information and consent. No case manager, cross-cultural liaison person or interpreter was appointed to the family at any stage. Had a case manager been appointed, earlier communication difficulties and delays would have been better managed, resulting in more timely surgery, which would likely have prevented her death. Hospital offers of surgery over the time frame of evidenced clinical deterioration were inadequate. Failure to communicate dates of surgery directly to the family or GP. Failure of hospital policy compliance to provide GP notification letters and notification of postponement slash removal from the waiting list. Failure of hospital policy complies to provide a clinical review for those whose management has fallen outside of categorized surgical waiting times. Delays, mishandling, and incorrect prioritization of referrals. Coroner's findings. The coroner found that Ms. KM's death was preventable and surgery, even with her clinical deterioration, could have prevented her death. The coroner recommended that the regional hospital adheres to the state waiting time and elective treatment service policy in respect of GP notification Also that the regional hospital extends the services of the paediatric liaison nurses to complex adolescent cases, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adolescents from remote communities when it is identified that their access to care is being complicated or compromised by cross-cultural issues remoteness, or other identified complexities. A further recommendation was that the Interstate Tertiary Referral Hospital ensures criteria for categorization to the ear, nose, and throat clinic are strictly adhered to. Author's comments. The case of Ms. KM highlights the complexity and disparity of First Nations health 
and how those living in rural and remote communities suffer significant disadvantage and disproportionate health statistics. Aboriginal health liaison officers are integral to quality outcomes and culturally safe care for Indigenous patients. They provide cultural support, communication and language assistance. They assist in health literacy and they help to navigate the health service. A failure to provide cultural care is a failure to provide health care. Hospitals must be responsive to patient needs and must strive to ensure patients are supported in a continuum of care by providing effective communication to general practitioners and community health services. Case number two, seen but not heard. By Dr. Jordana Stanford, who's a proud Gamilaroi woman with family ties to northwestern New South Wales. Jordana commenced paediatric basic training in 2023 at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and is a 2023 recipient of the RACP Indigenous Health Scholarship. Clinical summary Liz N.W. was a pregnant 27 year old Aboriginal woman who lived with her partner in a rural township, had a long history of abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Her medical issues began many years earlier when she underwent a colossostectomy, but she continued to experience intermittent symptoms of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. The frequency of symptoms gradually escalated over the next four years, and in the eight months prior to her death, she presented to a local hospital emergency department an exceedingly high number of times. At one point, she attended the hospital three times in one day, each time she presented, there were brief interventions such as intravenous fluids, antiemetics, antibiotics for Helicobacter pylori, and oral potassium supplements to provide symptomatic management of subsequent discharge. Between her hospital visits, she also saw multiple GPs at her local clinic. She was referred to drug and alcohol services numerous times despite self-reporting minimal marijuana use, that is, none at times, and used only to help relieve severe symptoms. She was not referred to any specialists to investigate the etiology of her symptoms, nor was she tested for completion of H. pylori treatment. Liz and W's Implanon, a contraceptive device, was considered a potential cause of her ongoing vomiting and was removed six months prior to her death. Liz and W's mother made a formal complaint the following month, describing that Liz and W didn't feel that her symptoms were being taken seriously and she was being stereotyped as a drug user and wanted to see a specialist. Ms. N.W. was found to be pregnant four months prior to her death. Although this was deemed a high-risk pregnancy by doctors, it was not flagged on her medical record. Ms. N.W. described wanting to move to the city to have her baby as she would feel more comfortable and where they would hear what she was saying. Two weeks prior to her death, when she was 22 weeks pregnant, Ms. N.W. attended the city hospital with a referral letter for their maternity service. She had shoulder and abdominal pain, nausea, and decreased oral intake, significant weight loss. She described to her doctor that she did not feel as if she had been receiving adequate treatment at her local hospital. She received symptomatic treatment and was discharged the next day. Two weeks later, at about 0015 hours, Ms. N.W. was observed by her partner to be unable to get out of bed, was burning up, and looked unwell. She was taken to her local hospital where she complained of feeling ill with generalised aches and vomiting. This presentation was at least the 18th time she'd sought help from the hospital in the eight-month period. She was seen by the triage nurse and a midwife at 0019 hours, 
where her first set of observations were recorded as blood pressure 90 over 50, heart rate 120 beats per minute, oxygen saturation levels 96% on room air, respiratory rate 18 breaths per minute, temperature 36 degrees Celsius. She was provided with paracetamol. Repeat observations were completed at 0053 hours and she was subsequently discharged home. She was not referred to be assessed by the on-call doctor. The previous medical records were not reviewed. Following this discharge from the hospital, Ms. N.W. returned home. She was hunched over, unable to straighten up, sweaty and pale. Just prior to 14.30 hours that same day, she collapsed at home and became unresponsive. An ambulance was called and cardio pulmonary resuscitation was commenced. On arrival at the hospital, she was an extremist, resuscitation was unsuccessful, and she was pronounced dead at 15.08 hours. Pathology. An autopsy was performed and the cause of death was identified as septicemia secondary to Neisseria meningitidis infection. Investigation. Ms. N.W.'s death was reported to the coroner due to the unexpected nature of her passing in the context of multiple hospital presentations. The questions raised during the inquest were focused on understanding the elements of Ms. N.W.'s interactions with her healthcare providers that could have prevented her death, whether this is in terms of the direct clinical care and decisions made in the context of a rural hospital, as well as the potential impact of unconscious implicit bias or racism. The coroner acknowledged there was a complex interplay of factors leading up to her final presentations. Ms. N.W.'s medical records were utilised for information into her current presentations and the care she received across both hospital and community health services. Statements were received by the health professionals involved in Ms. N.W.'s care during her presentations, including her final presentation. Expert evidence was obtained from two emergency physicians, an infectious diseases physician, an expert in race relations, and two senior nurses. The emergency physicians discussed several aspects of the care Ms. W received at the hospital and focused on a few critical points of Ms. W's final presentation around her vital signs and the treatment that she received. It was agreed that, ideally, Ms. W should have had a longer period of observation with basic investigations and a medical review before discharge. The infectious diseases expert outlined that there were no identifiable links between her chronic gastrointestinal symptoms and H. pylori infection and Neisseria meningitidis. The expert explained that total body pains can be part of the clinical picture of meningococcemia and her hypertension was most likely due to early sepsis at the time of her final presentation, which should have been excluded as a possibility. Early antibiotics and treatment would have greatly increased her chances of survival. The nursing experts described the importance of obtaining a detailed history of Ms. W's presenting symptoms with clear, timely documentation, the need for a longer period of observation, and notification to a medical officer for review. It was noted that Ms. W's presentation did not fit the documented protocols for a nursing-directed discharge. The race relations expert stated that it was feasible that Ms. W's care was compromised due to unconscious implicit bias or racism, both at an individual and institutional level. Aspects of the case revealed that Ms. W may have felt stereotyped based on the complaint by her mother, unheard and undertreated, gleaned from conversations documented at her presentation to the city hospital. The expert explained to the court that cultural competency of healthcare services can directly increase 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's access to healthcare and improve the disparities in health outcomes. The expert highlighted that one-off cultural safety training was not enough to provide culturally safe practice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in their communities, but that it involves ongoing dialogue and relationship building between local communities and their health system. Coroner's findings. The coroner found that based on the clinical information available and recorded, Ms. W should have been further investigated. She was discharged earlier than clinically indicated on her presentation to the hospital, after which she deteriorated from septicemia associated with Neisseria meningitidis infection. The coroner commented that Ms. W had felt unheard and her low expectations of the local hospital affected her decisions in relation to medical care. Following recommendations were made to the local health districts. Training of all staff about the importance of safety alerts and a consistent method for implementing these should be communicated to all staff. Implementation of a nurse-directed emergency care policy should be compiled as a matter of urgency. Strengthen the Aboriginal Health Liaison Worker Program and increase the availability of Aboriginal Health Liaison Officers out of hours and mandate that staff refer all Aboriginal patients to an Aboriginal Health Liaison Officer for a review. Adopting targets for Aboriginal employment and retention with an aim for parity with the local community. This should extend to proportionate representation on local health advisory and health district committees. An auditing process to review statistics to compare the care received by Indigenous and non-Indigenous patients to explore potential implicit bias. Identify other tools to measure implicit bias in healthcare and commit to making those tools available within the hospital. Establishing a consultation process to develop a strong local model for providing culturally safe care aligned with local initiatives. Seek immediate consultation with other health networks where initiatives already exist for providing culturally safe health care with a view to developing a similar local model. Author's comments. Racism is a key determinant of health for Indigenous Australians from birth to death and has been rightly labelled a public health crisis. Individual and systemic racism results in the differential treatment of black and indigenous people across Australia and exposes a healthcare system that is not culturally safe. The power imbalances so justly described by Dr. Chelsea Wetego in her 2022 article, A Catch the Pattern of Your Silence, highlight the need to deconstruct this power imbalance to allow people equitability and safe healthcare free from unconscious, implicit bias or racism. The acknowledgement by the coroner of issues relating to culturally safe care in Ms. and W's case is a step forward. The real question is, how do we challenge and change the undercurrent in Australia's consciousness? Addressing cultural safety through training and health initiatives may in the short term lead to better outcomes and fewer preventable deaths for Indigenous people. If it were as simple as that, however, then perhaps the ongoing health inequities would not exist. While I'm unfortunately not proposing a miraculous solution, from a junior doctor's perspective, I can see that work needs to be done before people enter the workforce, as well as once they are in it. I have witnessed healthcare students bring their preconceived ideas from internalized, intergenerational bias and racism into their first lecture or tutorial on Indigenous people and our health. I have watched them be appalled when their notions are challenged. Although progress is being made across universities, it needs to be training of staff to have these discussions and on how to have them. 
I would like to call upon all health professionals to do the work, challenge their own thinking, and step up when stereotypical and detrimental comments are heard with the quote-unquote best intentions. By reflecting on our clinical practice and decision-making when working with Indigenous people, we can all strive to do better. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Oli Winyard Gonfond. Expert commentary. Developing cultural safety behaviours and capabilities in healthcare. My name is Oli Winyard Gonfond, and this is my expert commentary. I'm a Koori man born and raised on Biripai country on the mid north coast of New South Wales, with Darug ancestry on my mother's side. I'm a senior design manager with PwC's Indigenous Consultant, and I have over a decade of community co-design experience working with governments, corporates, and most importantly, communities. I led the design and delivery of Long Long APRA's National Cultural Safety Training Program. Providing culturally safe care is the responsibility of everyone. For non-Indigenous peoples, it can sometimes be difficult to actualise the important role that they play in providing culturally safe care within the health system. This can stem from a range of issues, including a real or perceived lack of knowledge, confidence, or experience working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, cultures, and communities. Cultural safety training plays an important role in addressing these issues and providing participants with the tools, facts, and resources to confidently take action towards creating positive change. The journey towards providing care that is conducive to cultural safety occurs in two key ways. First, to establish a foundational understanding of the histories, cultures, and experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Second, to understand the skills and mindset required to provide care that is conducive to cultural safety. Foundational understanding. The content and facilitation of cultural safety training must be honest, open, and aligned with the principles of truth-telling. Understanding the extent and ongoing impact of the injustice, racism, and genocide experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is an important part of contextualizing their experiences historically as well as today. While there exists a near infinite number of stories and information about the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, there are core foundational parts of our shared history that are critical to learn about before moving forward with cultural safety training. Many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will feel differently about what the most important elements of our history might be. There is a vast amount of information to pull from our 60,000 plus years as a culture. But all cultural training should engage with the truth-telling and storytelling processes of our people and encourage and support learners to continue their lifelong learning journey going forward. While there's no steadfast rule regarding the amount of time required to build a sufficient foundational understanding of these histories, my experience has demonstrated a strong correlation between those who have spent more time in this foundational learning period and their readiness to transition to a culturally safe mindset. A mindset conducive to culturally safe care. It is critical that cultural safety is not taught as an end point of a learning process instead as an ever-evolving mindset that anyone can practice and maintain. Cultural safety is about providing care that is safe for someone of another culture. The only person who can define cultural safety is the person that is reporting on their experience. It's not a strict set of rules or adherence to a checklist of actions. It's unique 
and it is individual to every person. Operating within this ambiguity can feel daunting to begin with, but cultural safety training focuses on equipping learners with ways of thinking and operating that make this easier. While there are actions that might rightfully be associated with cultural safety, delivering a meaningful acknowledgement of country or calling out a racist remark, for example, cultural safety is about understanding and responding to the individual needs of a particular person, family, or community. This is precisely what cultural safety training should support people to do. Identify these needs, understand these needs, and respond to these needs. Where does an organization start? If you are seeking to implement a cultural safety learning program within your organization, be prepared to answer the following questions. How will we know if the training has been effective? What data, stories, or other information will we be able to collect to help us understand what is working and what is not? What resources are we able to commit to the development and delivery of this program? How will we ensure a culturally safe experience for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples or organisations with whom we wish to partner in designing and facilitating this training? How will we handle resistance to this learning from those internal to our organisation? Where do I start as an individual? If you would like to start working on your ability to provide culturally safe care, make a dedicated effort to learn more about the histories and cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the lands and seas of our country. Respect and recognise the great diversity that exists across and between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, families and peoples. Respectfully seek out the voices, stories and perspectives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Encourage your organisation or institution to implement a cultural safety program for its staff or engage in a cultural safety training program outside of your working environment. And most importantly, slow down, be empathetic and listen. These are important elements of creating a culturally safe environment where people feel able to share their needs. Let's now listen to the expert commentary titled Why Cultural Safety Improves Patient Safety, a conversation. This was a piece written by Adjunct Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham in collaboration with Ms. Jackie Gibson. Jackie Gibson is an Aboriginal woman of the Yamachi country who has extensive experience in the fields of education and health. She is a community consumer advocate who has been involved in several state and national health boards and committees. Jackie's section of the conversation will be narrated by Jordana. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me on the topic of why cultural safety improves patient safety. Can you start by describing how and when did the concept of cultural safety in healthcare come about? We owe our brothers and sisters in Arotorua a huge thank you because they introduced and led the work on cultural safety. The concept first came about in the 1980s by Maori midwifery students who felt unsafe in the predominantly Anglo, Pakia educational setting they were training in. The concept grew to encompass a more generalised view of the systematic underserving of Maori people by health services and the principles of cultural safety. Kawa Whakaruahawa were conceptualised as a way of redressing Indigenous health inequities. Indigenous scholar Irahapiti Ramsden was pivotal to the formation of this concept. In this edition of the Clinical Communicate, 
we're looking at cultural safety and its relationship to patient safety. And in healthcare, we're driven by evidence. What does the evidence tell us about the existence of cultural safety in healthcare? Do we have any? We have made incremental steps, but we have a long way to go to address the core inequalities. And I think one way we're tackling this is looking at the way we're training medical students and looking at the way those standards have been revised to include cultural safety. We're also starting to build in the right supports for Indigenous health trainees because representation in the workforce matters. Indigenous-led health services are vital in understanding self-determination and the nuances of their local communities. Changes are happening at a college level too. An example is the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine, which set about highlighting the importance of employing Aboriginal health liaison officers in emergency departments, rather than relying on one or two Aboriginal health liaison officers to support an entire hospital. The National Safety and Quality Health Services Standards outline action items on cultural awareness and improving cultural competency. Every practitioner under the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency must ensure cultural safe and respectful practice. And that is a struggle, I think, for some, as they might assume that they know what cultural safety is because they've completed online cultural safety training. But what they fail to understand is that Cultural safety is defined by the patient and their family and carers. It doesn't matter if a hospital thinks that culturally it is performing well. That can only be determined by the patient who has a right to be treated in a culturally safe space. You mentioned some changes at a national level and an organisational level. Some organisations are bringing in training on cultural safety some have already prioritised it, and others fall short of any positive change. Are there ways that we can objectively measure and compare how culturally safe a department or organisation is? Yes, there are. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare is one example. They have captured some data around that and present key findings in relation to culturally safe healthcare services. Between 2013 and 2020, the rate of Indigenous medical practitioners employed in Australia increased from 232 to 494. It's not huge, but we're heading in the right direction. In Indigenous primary health care organisations and mental health and maternal health care services, 47% of full-time staff are Indigenous, so we are making tracks. What about at an individual level? How do I, as a clinician, know that I am doing everything I can to practice and promote culturally safe principles in the workplace? It can be as simple as noting that the patient has registered on a hospital form that they are of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent and asking, can you tell me about your mob? Where is your country? Is there someone who you feel would be a good support person for you right now? Are you comfortable? And to really listen and acknowledge their concerns. You might need to say to them that you understand that hospitals are traumatic places for some patients and families and explore what would help make them feel respected and that their cultural needs are being met. 
I remember talking to an Indigenous woman in a mental health unit and on the walls there was an Indigenous mural and she said, whenever I felt unsafe and like things weren't going well, I went and looked at that picture and it really just helped to settle me. So sometimes it's just the small things. At one hospital I know of, they took the time to make a possum skin cloak so that when women were having mammograms and other intimate or invasive procedures, they could put it around them, that that would help them feel safer. Sometimes they would wear it to feel comforted when they were, when they were receiving bad news. It is about recognising that cultural items can help to ground a person and remind them that they're valued and respected and it's making those items accessible to patients. This brings us to the key question and why we are discussing cultural safety here. In everything that we talk about in healthcare, there is one common goal, patient safety. What do you think is the link between cultural safety and patient safety? And how strong is that link? That link is significant. The National Agreement on Closing the Gap demonstrates the priority reforms needed to achieve equal life outcomes for all Australians. Core inequalities still have not been addressed and we can't fix those problems until we have a workforce where there is strong Indigenous representation and where their non-Indigenous counterparts are good allies. People need to be willing to put aside their biases and understand that each of their patients has different cultural needs and is going to be approached differently. So if your patient says, I really want to get back to country because I feel disconnected, or a patient's family asks, is there a way that we can have an elder come in and help them understand what's going on? Make every effort to support those needs. Sometimes the elder will speak on behalf of the family and sometimes even on behalf of the patient. As a patient, having a support person in the room who identifies with you, even if you don't know them well, just gives you a sense of, ah, oh, they get it. And if I'm asked a question that I don't understand, they will at least help explain it to me. COVID-19 was very hard because the restrictions took away that option for many Indigenous patients. Can you think of an example where a lack of cultural safety contributed to patient harm? There are sadly many examples in coroner's cases, like the two highlighted in this clinical communique, as well as a couple of recent inquests where a lack of cultural safety was identified as a contributing factor to the harm that occurred. Since we know that it's also essential to learn from when things go well, my next question is, can you think of an example of how culturally safe practices led to better patient outcomes? There is a great example in Victoria where Smile Squad dental vans were repurposed as vaccination vans in an initiative by the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, community leaders and mainstream health services to boost vaccine numbers among Indigenous people in the state's region and close the gap between Indigenous vaccination rates, which were sitting less than 60% for the first dose, and non-Indigenous vaccination rates that were much higher around 90% first dose. The vans removed barriers to healthcare such as poor access and provided holistic cultural care at the grassroots level. It is 
It was the Indigenous healthcare workers who were knocking on the doors, rolling up sleeves and saying, hey, let's have a yarn about it. Let's talk about are you out for the vaccine? You're here. Would you like to just hop on the bus? We can give it to you. You've got your kids with you. We can look after them. It was a huge success and the rate of Indigenous people in Victoria who'd received at least one dose increased substantially. And why? Because we pass that power back to the people who knew best. It's that kind of creativity that makes a positive impact. It's about self-determining, knowing your local community and understanding that different clans and mob have different pressures and that it's not a one-size-fits-all. If there is humility and a willingness to engage and understand, then better can be offered to patients. So with that in mind, how far have we come with focusing on cultural safety to improve patient safety? Is the momentum building? Yes, I think it is. There is far greater awareness at all levels of healthcare decision-making. Governments acknowledge that cultural safety is important and are funding it in various ways. Accreditation organisations understand that their standards can influence the training of Indigenous clinicians and the awareness of non-Indigenous clinicians. That includes finding pathways for Indigenous people to explore careers in health, and this hinges on the fact that you need to have Indigenous expertise when you are going to accredit organisations. To ensure that we are creating interest, training and appropriately remunerating and putting in the right supports and the right people. So that all of this, prioritising cultural safety, is optimised every time. Also, it is so important to recognise that in hospitals and community health services, there should be Aboriginal liaison officers, Aboriginal healthcare workers, and Aboriginal emotional and social wellbeing people always available to help meet the needs. That leads well into my last question, which is about who is best positioned to drive cultural safety in healthcare? If we think about the structure that exists around and in healthcare, should it be the coroners, hospital executives, quality and safety managers, Indigenous health liaison officers, or clinicians? It is everyone's job. They all need to support each other in constructing and embedding cultural safety in organisations. Okay. In wrapping up then, do you have any final words on why cultural safety improves patient safety? If a person doesn't feel culturally safe or if they feel like they've been unheard of for whatever reason their health care experience is triggering, they're unlikely to find trust and follow through with the medical advice that is being given. If a clinician doesn't understand that a Western concept of family is quite different from an Indigenous concept of family and adjusts how they communicate with an Indigenous person and their mob, then trust cannot be built and that affects the health outcomes. What might those adjustments look like? Perhaps it's just asking yourself, how am I going to be a good ally and understand that sometimes extra space and time needs to be given to a family conference? or that an immediate contact might be an elder who can offer spiritual guidance. Cultural safety is about looking at how a person accesses healthcare, right down to the practicalities of transport and filling out forms and making them feel empowered in their health journey. 
I know of a patient who was worried about having surgery and wanted to have a smoking ceremony before he went to the operation, and the hospital allowed that. It was the start of a great recovery for him, and that's what we mean by really listening, understanding, and putting the patient's needs at the forefront. Then patient safety will flow naturally because there is trust. Enabling trust in the system, the hospital staff listened to the patient, which meant to the patient that he could speak up. He will now take his medication because they listened to him about wanting a smoking ceremony. He will be willing to do all the other things that are asked of him because he believes they are truly listening, understanding and caring. I think that's a very practical reflection that people can see is attainable as well. It's not that hard to listen to a patient. And organisations have a lot of resources within their power to be able to assist patients in those tangible ways. As you've said, it can make a significant difference to a patient's subsequent health journey. Once there's trust in a particular outpatient clinic or a clinician, and one person in the community has a good experience, you'll be surprised at how quickly word will get around and more people will access care. If I look at everything that we've talked about and I try to summarise in one word your key point to my question of why cultural safety improves patient safety, it would be trust. What I'm hearing from you is that cultural safety improves trust. Trust improves patient safety. Would you agree with that? Yes. It's all about fostering trust in the healthcare system because it hasn't been a culturally safe system. No one's going to get cultural safety right all the time, but you must be willing to learn and be open-minded. If you improve cultural safety, you are promoting patient-centred care. That means you are improving patient safety, not just for Indigenous patients, but for everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode. Remember the print versions of all our podcast episodes are available online and at our website, www.thecommunicase.com, which also include hyperlinks and a list of resources and any references that our case summary authors and our experts have recommended. If you go to the March 2023 print edition of the Clinical Communicate, you will also find the extended biographies for each of our contributors as well as information about the front cover image, which was generously provided by Indigenous artist Mr Tim Stanford for use in our edition. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.